scripture text for this evening's message is found in the book of Titus, chapter 3. Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Before I pray, let me remind you, that on all three campuses, as always on Communion Sunday, we take a helping hand offering at the end, which is dedicated this time to the Minnesota Baptist Conference Benevolence Fund for needy uh, retired pastors. So let's be generous at the end. Father, now I stand in need, not of any money, but of your Holy Spirit. Money would be of no use to me right now at all to accomplish what I want to accomplish, namely the salvation of the lost and the strengthening of your people, the reconciling of the alienated, the teaching of the ignorant, the guidance for the confused, refreshment for the downcast. I pray for the pastors who are here for the conference that they would take heart from this service and this message and that you would begin to do a deep and profound work all the way through Wednesday that would set them to put their hand to the plow afresh and not look back. So wherever we are on the spiritual spectrum from unbelief to radical belief, I pray that you would do a a saving, strengthening, healing, reconciling, empowering, guiding, encouraging work. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Notice in verse 5, the word regeneration. Uh, This is the ninth in the series on regeneration. In the first one, I I told all the children to remember to teach their parents that another name for the new birth was regeneration. I hope all the children have taught their parents well so that when I get to this word, they'll know what it means. Verse 5 goes, He, that is God, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. So there's our key word, which is why I have chosen this text in this next message in the series. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We've posed the question, what is it? What is the new birth? We've posed the question, why is it needed? And we've posed the question, how does it happen? Dividing the how question into two parts, namely, uh, how does God do it and how do we take part in it? We haven't gotten here yet. We're still here. 
And that's what I'm doing in this text. Posing the question again, how does it happen? What is involved from God's side in this reality called the new birth or being born again or regeneration? Now, before we go directly to that question, I cannot pass over quickly the answer given to the what question and the why question in this text. So just by way of a little expansion and review, let's take a what and a why before we get to the how. There are some signals here that are extraordinary about what it is. Let's take one of them. This word, regeneration here, the word behind it in the Greek only occurs one other time in the Bible. And it's very significant. So I'll read it to you. It's Matthew 19. It's in the mouth of Jesus. Verse 28, talking to the 12 apostles after the event of saying that the rich man will have a hard time getting into the kingdom of heaven and Peter having said, we've left everything and followed you. What about us? Jesus says this, Matthew 19, 28. Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, that's the word. It should be translated very literally, in the regeneration. It's exact what it means. The new birth, in the second birth, in the new birth, When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, the regeneration in Matthew 19, 28 is a reference to the regeneration of the universe. In the regeneration, translated here, new world. Well, it's okay. Just... Can't do the parallel with Titus 3.5 when you see that. In the regeneration, the Son of Man will sit in a glorious throne and the twelve apostles on thrones judging Israel. This is the new heavens and the new earth described in Isaiah 65 and 66. So Jesus conceives of the new birth as not simply a spiritual thing going on in here, but a global, universal thing going on out there. And this thing going on in here is to get me ready for that, to make me suitable for that, to make me an inhabitant of that, because not everybody will be there. There will be an outer darkness outside the universe. The most important text in the Bible, I think, about the new birth of the universe is Romans 8, 20 to 23. You can go there with me if you want. To me, this is an absolutely fundamental, foundational, pervasively influential text in the way I do my ministry because it affects how I visit you in the hospital and think about your sickness. And a host of other things. I cannot overemphasize the importance of Romans 8, 20 to 23. 
So let me read it for you. And I'll point it, when we get to the place, you'll see it, but I'll point it out when we get there, where the regeneration of the universe happens. For the creation, not all of it, not just you and your little soul, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, nobody, nobody among us wanted this, Subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's only one person who can subject the universe in hope. And the devil doesn't do that. God does that. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You get it first. And then he says, I got to have a universe for these new people. Just as I'm making them new, I'm going to make the universe new. And they will have a new heavens and a new earth in which to dwell. They have spiritual bodies. And I'll have a spiritual universe where they eat fish and pass through doors. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. There it is. There's going to be a new birth. Cancer is labor pains. Tsunami, labor pains. That's the meaning of that verse. Everywhere you look, inside your body and outside in this world, Kenya, Chad, labor pains, groaning, horrible groanings. I saw some horrible pictures on the internet of burn victims and tumors this week. I cried, I cried. We have to keep them hidden, we can't take it. Paul looked it right in the face, and he named it. This is the fall. This is futility. This is corruption. This is subjection. Let's start over in verse 22. For we know, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, yours might say, and travail. That's the implication. Verse 23. And not only the creation, and this is how I feel about your hospital stay, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. This is Spirit-empowered, indwelt saints and children of God dying in agony in hospitals and with machete swipes right down their face like this. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, when, when our adoption is complete, it's going to include our bodies, and it doesn't yet. That's important for a pastor to get his arms around when he has a suffering people. Otherwise, he's going to say stupid things about their lack of faith. So, when you put all that together, here's the picture. God's purpose for this universe that he made is that the entire creation be born again. That the whole universe 
replace futility, replace corruption, replace disease, degradation, degeneration, disasters, a whole new order, new heavens, new earth. He calls it when the Son of Man sits in the regeneration. He'll be on a throne. So, when Paul uses this word, only other place in the Bible, in Titus 3, 5, hear it big. Hear it small, but hear it big. Not just our spirits, not just our bodies, not just our bodies, but also our spirits. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons. Why did God subject the world? I can't go on without just addressing this to futility like this. What you see in the world in terms of horror is owing to God's subjecting the world to futility when Adam and Eve sinned. It's called the fall. They fell, but the question is, why did the universe fall? Why do hurricanes go together with disobedience? And I'll tell you the only answer I know. God regarded the moral outrage of sin, moral evil, as so horrendous, he gave us touchable, visible evidences of the outrage in our own sicknesses, our own tsunamis, our own wars, our own divorces, He unleashed on the world so much pain that we would have to say, either this is massively wrong and unjust, or sin is more horrible than I thought it was. I hope you give the second answer. It's a parable. It's a physical imaging of a moral Outrage. You come to Titus 3 5 now, and the beginning of the healing, the beginning of the, the regeneration. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal. In the Holy Spirit. So when he gets to verse 7, and he says that the aim of that regeneration and that salvation is that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now I hope you fill up the term eternal life as big as it really is. Heirs in hope of a life that is not just this awful life extended. If it's not awful for you, you're in a bubble. You're just not sharing in the problems. Not the extension of this awful life, 
but a totally new life in a totally new universe. That's what eternal life will be. New bodies, new heavens, new earth, new perfected relationships, new sinless sight of all that is good and glorious, beautiful, new capacities for a kind of pleasure in God that now you never dreamed of. It will be so new and so glorious. So I couldn't pass by the what of regeneration in this text. The why of regeneration here is not new. It's just so clear, I think I should say it, namely verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. That's not the material creation under the curse. That's our sin, which brings the material creation under the curse. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to pleasures that are sinful, malice, envy, hated, and hating. You're there somewhere. And so am I. The reason we need regeneration is because that's us. That's the way we were. And because remnants remain, it's sometimes the way we still are. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is because hearts like verse 3 don't go to heaven. God won't let that kind of heart in his heaven. That kind of heart will not be in heaven, which means you must be born again. And then comes in verse 4, like so many times in the Bible... That glorious and most precious of all phrases, perhaps, but God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, God saved us. It's exactly like the logic of Ephesians 2, 3 to 5, isn't it? Listen to those great words. We were carrying out the desires of the body in the mind and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead, but God made us alive. By grace you've been saved. Exactly the same logic as we have here in Titus 3, 3 and 4. So... There's the what of regeneration, this first installment of this universal renewal is happening right here when God does it in us. And it's because we were so foolish and so hated and so hating and so wicked, 
so selfish. And we knew that our hearts as they are could never be in heaven. There has to be a renewal called the new birth. Now we turn to the question, how? How does it happen? How did God do it, this regeneration? It's amazing to me that Paul here speaks in the same pattern as Jesus did in John 3. Remember in John 3, he said, Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Water, Spirit, water, Spirit. And here we have, in verse 5, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Washing water, renewal by the Spirit, Spirit. That's really important, I think, to see what Paul is doing here. Jesus said, verse 5 of John 3, unless you, and the easy way to remember it is 3, 5 and 3, 5. John 3, 5, Titus 3, 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I argued nine sessions ago that Jesus was getting those categories of water and spirit from Ezekiel chapter 36, which goes like this. This is the new covenant promise, which Jesus says is now here. It's happening. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So Ezekiel is saying that when the new covenant is fulfilled in and through the Messiah, the blood of the new covenant, as Jesus called it when he held up that cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When that new covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the, the newness that we're going to experience will be experienced in terms of cleansing and in terms of renewal by the Spirit. And, and we argued both of these are absolutely crucial. If you only spoke in terms of renewal, you'd think, oh, am I the same person I was before I was born again? Or am I not John Piper then? And this one says, no, no, no. You are the same because I cleaned you. I cleaned you. It's the same you who was pre-born again and the same you after, only clean. <clears throat> and then this one says, and a new nature. Because as you move into the future, you're not just moving with the same resources you had, only clean. You've now got new resources. Your, your nature is new. You have the Holy Spirit empowering you, renewing you. And so... That's the same thing we have here, I think. Namely, a washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, how does that happen? Start, but when the goodness, verse 4, 
when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is the big overarching term. He saved us. Regeneration is one part of the way he's doing it in this verse. But the key how words are goodness, loving kindness, and mercy. You see those? When the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So those are the three words I'm fastening on. Goodness, loving kindness, and mercy. Let's take those one at a time. This is how it happened. Goodness. This word here is kindness. Kindness. It's the word that Paul used in that magnificent... I know Tom loves this verse in Ephesians 2, 7. I've seen him come back to it again and again and again. God made us alive so that in the coming ages, God might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It will take an eternity for you to know how kind God is. In order for the word kindness in the deity to land on us with something like its appropriate force, we have to enlarge our picture of God. Because little weak people, we expect to be nice. And we associate kind with nice. So let yourself just enlarge God. He created the universe. He numbers the stars. He holds the world in being. He runs everything in the universe. He is down to the details in terms of whether a bird falls out of the tree or whether one of your head's hairs turns gray or not. He's down to the details in his involvement in the universe and he's never taxed in any of this effort. And that great God is kind. He's kind. And so, if you stand in front of the mirror with the gospel between tonight and say, I'm saved. I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. I'm a new person, not the person I was before I believed and before the Holy Spirit came into my life. I'm new, I'm saved, I'm born again. Let that reality bear witness to this. God is kind. Because that's the only reason you can say it. When the kindness of God appeared, He saved us through the washing of regeneration. That's number one. Number two, translated here, loving kindness. It's not a common word. It's not a common word 
In fact, it only occurs here in the New Testament. And if I told you the Greek, you'd know the English. So I'll tell it to you. Philanthropia. 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 Philanthropy is divided into two parts. Phil, love. Anthropos, man, humans. Love of humans. God's the, the ultimate philanthropist. He's the ultimate lover of humans. He likes to make things go well for humans. He likes to found hospitals and cures to diseases and so on. And when his philanthropia appears, he saves through the washing of regeneration. Amazing. Appears. That's an important word. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, if He had been kind in His nature, and if He had been a philanthropist in His nature, and it never appeared, that would do us no good. It's the arrival. It's the going public, it's the appearing, it's the manifestation on the planet that saves. So what is that? When did that happen? When and how did the kindness and the philanthropy of God our Savior appear? Now there's, you don't have to just answer that theological, oh I know what it refers to. You, you, can, you can answer it. Textually, because there's a clue here, and the clue is that in verse 4, God is called our Savior. And in verse 6, Christ is called our Savior. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, then verse 6, whom he poured out, the Spirit poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, our Savior, came and his name was Jesus, our Savior. God, our Savior, is kind and philanthropical and it appeared and his name was Jesus. That's clear. The only reason we're saved is not simply the fact that God is a certain way. Regeneration, remember, is not some vague spiritual thing disconnected from history. It's rooted in objective reality as the Spirit moves in on my life, and it happens as I am brought into union with the God-man, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, who is life. And that's the only way I have life. So some vague kind of God is good, and God is philanthropical, and so if you just somehow relate to God, you'll be born again. No, no, no. That goodness, that kindness, that philanthropy appeared. And it appeared in a person who had to die for my sins and who invites me to come to him to have what he offers me. And if I will come, 
then it all counts for me. Number three, the last one, mercy. So kindness, philanthropy, and mercy. Verse five, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. If you're born again, it's owing to God's mercy. God is merciful. We were dead, and he made us alive. God being rich in mercy when we were dead in our own trespasses, God made us alive. Being rich in mercy, he made us alive. God is kind, God is loving toward humanity, and God is merciful, and that's how the new birth comes about. Now, he could have stopped right there. That would have been great. Those three big sources through which it happens. Kindness, love of humanity, mercy. Could have just stopped right there. Stayed positive. People like people to be positive. And not say anything negative. But he didn't. Negations and denials are absolutely essential. Only asking people what they believe will not show you what they believe. I've done it too many times in too many conversations. You must ask them what they do not believe. Then it comes clear what they believe when they say what they believe. And Paul operates that way. So... We read, he saved us, not. He's got people in mind here. He's got error in mind here. He's got devastation and damnation in mind here that come from these kinds of mistakes. And he loves these people. And so he negates as well as affirms. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Now, why does he, why does he do that? He does it because he knows the way John Piper is wired. And he knows the way you're wired. And I'll tell you how you're wired unless you're really unusual. Like divine. You're wired like this. When something really wonderful happens to you, your mind defaults, I must have done something good. That's the way we're wired. When something really good happens to you, you think, I must have done something right. And Paul, with this massive negation, is saying, now listen, all you wired up folks, when it comes to salvation through regeneration, do not think that way. That's what he's saying. Because we're wired to think, okay, got to do something. Got to do something. Or if you're already a Christian because the great thing has already happened to you, the devil and your own nature, your own wiring, day by day is whispering a little in your ear saying, was owing to you. 
was owing to you. It was owing to you. It was owing to you. You got it right. They didn't. You did. Mark this. He does not say he saved us not because of deeds done by us in legalism. He is not saying it is your worst deeds and your worst motives that I am excluding from having any causality here. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am excluding your best deeds and your best motives from having any causality here. That's what he's saying. Let's read it again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not legalism. Your best work, your purest motive was irrelevant when you were born again. And the alternative that he puts over against those best of all deeds and motives, mercy. Mercy. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own sovereign, free mercy. Just like Romans 9, 16. Was not your willing or running, but of God who has mercy. This is one reason, in closing, why I say the washing of regeneration does not refer to baptism. You go read the commentaries. Eighty percent of them say it refers to baptism. And here stands little Piper. I don't think so. I have strong feelings about sacramentalism. If I used the language I feel, I would get emails. <laughs> you were not born again through your baptism. The washing of regeneration is a spiritual reality affected by the Holy Spirit, not a physical or a spiritual reality affected by the deeds done in righteousness by a pastor on your body or your own deeds done in righteousness. Neither circumcision under the old covenant nor baptism under the new covenant is the means by which regeneration is effected. It is free. It is not under the management of anybody's hands or water or words. How many people are in hell today because they thought... I was born again when I was baptized. That's tragic. So you can see why I feel strongly about it. And I reject it for numerous reasons. I gave about five of them in John 3. The one I'm adding is 
He saved us through the washing of regeneration, not by deeds done by us in righteousness, but by mercy. So I close with this benedictory longing. May God give you eyes to see that nothing could make you humbler and nothing could make you happier than the truth that your new birth was owing to nothing that you ever done, but owing entirely to the mercy of God. May God give us eyes to see and enjoy that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are some in the room who are not yet born again. It has to be so in a group this size. I don't know who they are. You see them crystal clear. It is your kindness and your philanthropy and your mercy that brought them here tonight to hear Shai Lin take them back to the climax of history, to watch us symbolize the glory of the death and resurrection of Jesus at the communion table, to let them see this congregation rise in song to the greatest news in the world that Christ came into the world to save sinners and to hear this message about how the new birth is brought about by kindness, love of humanity, and mercy. And I pray that this truth would simply take them and make them your own so that they would believe in you and enjoy you forever and ever. Thank you for the mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.